Good morning. It's great to see you and to have you guys. Yeah, it's good to see you guys here at Elgin. Um, also want to say hi to all the folks at all our other campuses. It's great to have you guys join us. We're going to be studying God's Word here in the next few minutes in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I want to invite you to um, open your Bibles there. I need to tell you, last week we said that we were going to start Acts and that was just a bald-faced lie. Uh, we, we actually were intending to, but midway, mid, midway through this week, uh, I had a meeting with a, several of the pastors and others, and they said, we have an idea, and the idea is that I would do, do some vision stuff next week, and uh, we didn't want to start Acts before we launched our ministries next week, and so they said, do you have a sermon that you can do this week? And I said, do I have a sermon? Yes, I have a sermon I could do this week, and so um, I am very pleased to be able to preach this sermon. It's been one that's meant an awful lot to me over the years in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and it does fit very well with what the things I want to say next week, but then the following week, okay, so three weeks, you have three weeks to find that dumb Acts journal that you hid somewhere in your house, three weeks, uh, we will start our journey in the book of Acts again. Now for today, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, many of you will not know the name Charles Templeton. You might. You know the name Billy Graham much, much better. What's interesting is that Billy Graham and Charles Templeton were at one point in time very, very much the two most well-known evangelists in North America. It was in the 1940s. Uh, Charles Templeton, Canadian guy. He was from uh, the province of Ontario. In 1940s, uh, mass evangelism hit the United States really big. And by mass evangelism, I mean like kind of the tent meeting, uh, the old tent meetings where you used to come along on a Wednesday or a Thursday night. And we might even do a week-long revival services. It wouldn't always be inside a church. It would be kind of outside in a field maybe, a big tent. People would come along. The person would preach a sermon and, and, and people would be invited to come forward and receive Christ as their Savior. Uh, that was called an, an altar call in those days, and it has a history in some of the tent meeting revivals in, in years gone by. Anyway, in 1940s, this became a really, really more popular thing that, that these evangelists would do, and they travel from town to town to town to town to do these things. Billy Graham, of course, is the most well-known of these in the modern Day uh, He used to fill places like Soldier Field. That's how popular he was. Charles Templeton was just behind him in, in popularity. In 1946, he was listed as one of the men best used of God by the National Association of Evangelicals, which I always think is really funny. Did they give him, do you get a trophy for that? You know, best use of God is it on your, is like an Academy Award. I just want to thank all the people in my life. Best used of God by the National Association of Evangelicals, 1946. He was a pastor of a rapidly growing church called Avenue Road Church in Toronto. And he was really involved in the formation and the early stages of Youth for Christ. And so if you know anything about that ministry, which is still around, still vibrant, he had a significant part to play in in its beginnings. A real heart to reach people with the gospel. He had a real heart to see people who were far from Christ brought near to Christ. Um, newspapers during this time were reporting back in a day where they would report this sort of thing, right? Gives you a little bit of taste of Christian, our Christian heritage in our country. Um, they were reporting that he was winning about 150 converts a night. In week-long, in week-long meetings in Evansville, Indiana, the town had 128,000 total people in it. That's, that's the number that, you know, when you drive into the town, there's on the sign. Evan, welcome to Evansville, 100, population 128,000. Out of that 128,000, 91,000 of them came to hear him preach. That was not odd for him to travel through the Midwest and other places and have all these people come and and hear him preach. The problem, of course, is that he began having serious doubts about his faith while he was still preaching. Some of the stories are that while he was explaining 
things about Jesus and the resurrection and all of the challenges that uh, the Christianity faces, he started to realize while he was preaching that those challenges were stronger than he had ever imagined before. So you've got an apologist, an evangelist, who all the words are coming out of his mouth are thinking, I don't think those are true. The story goes that uh, after his last sermon, he gave it, he said, I didn't believe a single word of it. And the story goes that he basically just walked straight down from the pulpit out the back of the church and, and left Christianity behind. He wrote a book years later called Farewell to God. Here's what he said in it. He said, I oppose the Christian church because for all the good it sometimes does, it presumes to speak in the name of God and to propound and advocate beliefs that are outdated, demonstrably untrue, and often in their various manifestations, deleterious to individuals and to society. Charles Templin was an ex-evangelical before that was a thing. He deconstructed his faith before anyone even knew what that was going to mean. We, of course, live in a day now where an ex-evangelical or a deconstructing uh, religious person are like normal. It's lots and lots of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who go off to college and just leave behind all the upbringing they have in the faith. It's gotten so much, in fact, that people write books on how do you keep your kids from falling away from the faith when they go to the state college or the Christian college. It's not a new thing, by the way, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, there's, there's a couple of guys who, who say, it says that uh, they shipwrecked their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The theological term that we use to describe these people is they're apostate. They've committed the sin of apostasy. They once believed even strongly, even maybe were pastors, maybe were evangelists, but through action or through doctrine, they walk away from the faith and they are no longer what they claim to be nor espouse to others. So here's the question. What does scripture say about someone like Charles Templeton? What does scripture say about Hymenaeus and Alexander? And by that I mean, what is their spiritual reality? Are they Christians? Will they stand before God one day and receive commendation from him? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Will they hear... Uh, you say to me, Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say. Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Or is it somewhere in between? They professed faith and the people who professed faith and live out the implications of the faith, they, they receive big rewards in heaven, but those who just profess faith and then leave it behind, they just, they're in heaven too, but they're just not in the better part of it. What do we say biblically about someone like Charles Templeton? Well, the answer actually is not that hard. There's lots of places in scripture that talk about it, but Hebrews chapter three, verse 14 is about as clear as you can get. The writer of Hebrews says, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed, there's a condition on it. We hold our conviction firmly to the very end. You have to finish the race that you begin in other, way. In other words. The Apostle Paul talks about that at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. You have to keep the faith. You have to finish the race that is begun or it's all for naught. It's a consistent testimony of, of the Bible. So as Christian people who enter church on a day like this, 
Um, we need to know that giving up, pulling a Templeton is not an option. So how do we keep going? What does it look like to, to keep going? What kinds of advice does the Bible give us? Commands does the Bible give us so that we can keep going? Well, that's actually what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is about. Writer of Hebrews gets to this point in the book and is like, right, so if you want to keep going in the faith, which is what the whole book is about, he says here, there are a few things that you can do. I've listed them off in this way. Number one, embrace your race. Number two, run without the robe. And three, welcome the witnesses. I'm so happy of how pithy those are. You have no idea. I'm so proud of my... Embrace your race, run without the robe, and welcome the witnesses. So look, let's look at this passage under those three headings. Here's the first of them. If you want to continue to follow Jesus all your days... And receive the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award you on that day. Then you need to embrace your race. Here's what I mean by that. Here's the passage. Um, <clears throat> therefore, uh, this word, of course, is always relying, uh, uh, explaining something that happened before. I will talk in a minute about what happened before. In Hebrews 11. But what he says here is built on that. Therefore. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to keep going through all of the difficulties, but let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This is a, this is a passive, Yes. Somebody else is marking out a race for us. You know, in the original context here, the, the, the Roman world, they loved their, uh, their athletic competitions and mostly they loved doing races. And they would sometimes do races inside of a big stadium, the Corinthian games or the Olympic games or things that they came up with, you know, long periods of time where different groups would compete against each other and lots of different things, wrestling and all of that. But one of the races that they would do would be kind of akin to kind of our cross-country type of race. You know, and you, you, you know, if, listen, if you're a cross-country race designer, you know what you do. You walk out the door of your house and you try to figure out, right, we're going to have this cross-country race. Let's figure out a, some, some place where we can put these, these children through as much pain and heartache as they possibly can have, right? So you go to the place where they have to cross a river or they have to climb a mountain. And then after they get up the mountain, they have to climb another mountain, and there's another mountain, and then that's the end. The end is at the top of the mountain, right? They don't get to come down at all. You get to design it that way. And so if you go out, you design your race, just like the Roman race masters would do. They go out and they design a race. We're going to go through that place, go up there, go around the corner, come back, and then it's going to be a big loop, and it's going to be a whatever, miles. That's the race. And it's marked out for all the people running. Now, that, that makes it sound... Like the race being marked out for us is the same for every one of us, yes? But that's, worth, that's a question worth asking, isn't it? Is that what he means? That each person's race is the same as everybody else's. Now raise the question because if you had read chapter 11, you would not come to that conclusion. Let me show you what I mean by Hebrews chapter 11. So this is, for those of you kind of are new to the church, or faith, or the Bible, whatever, Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith, right? It's like the hall of fame, hall of faith, because it lists a whole bunch of people who kept going, following Jesus, regardless of what it meant, whether or not they saw the outcome of their faith in this life, or they didn't see the outcome of their faith in this life. They just kept persevering. He gets to the point where he's listed off all sorts of people in the Old Testament and talked in little brief snippets about each of them. But then he gets to the point and he's like, oh, look, I'm kind of tired of writing. I don't, what, what more shall I say? He says, look, I don't have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered 
They conquered kingdoms. You know, Gideon down there in the riverbed and God's like, we need to narrow down the number of guys you're gonna go and take out for, to, you know, to, to battle. So we get down there and the guys who get down on all their haunches and look like a dog, they're gone. The ones who kind of keep their eyes on the horizon, they're gonna be your, your warriors. But God, there's only 300 of them, perfect. I'm gonna take the 300 and I'm gonna just destroy the enemy. They conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. In, in, in this life, they gained what was promised. The Lord said, if you go forward and you do this particular thing, you will receive the, the reward. And they went forward, did the particular thing. It was really hard. They had to persevere through it. But they saw in this time, the outcome of their faith. This is, man, this is the kind of Christian life we want, yeah? They shut shut the mouths of lions. Wouldn't you love to be Daniel sitting there in the lion's den? I mean, of course not. When you're going in, you're like, well, it's it's all done, right? You go in there and then all of a sudden the lions lay down like my dog Lulu on your lap and you're just petting them the whole time. Now that, come on. There's no greater enemy maybe than a lion. Maybe there is, I don't know. I don't want to try it. You shut the mouths of lions. You quench the fury of the flames. Daniel's buddies are in there. Get in there. You're going to all die in the flames. We're going to, we, we got to do it. They get in there and they start walking around. There's another dude in there with them. That's what I want to see. When I have faith in the Lord and I take steps of that faith, I don't know what's going to happen, Lord. I want it to come through in a way that I can see it now. Like, like now. And these people did. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their, their weakness was turned to strength. They became powerful in battle and they, they routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead. Remember the widow, Elijah. He lays on top of the kid and he comes back to life. Who hasn't had a child and prayed like that for their healing. To see their healing in this time. Praise God, we just... We delight in him and how wonderful he is in this, in our faith. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who, who were tortured. You do notice the shift here, yeah? We, see, we want all this stuff. This is like resurrection faith in the time. We get to, come on, this is, we win the battle. We get to see it. But then he says, well, but there were others And they were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. It means they died. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. I imagine when they're standing in the pit with all the people picking up stones and raining them down on them, they were praying to the Lord that he would deliver them. Lord, remember Daniel. Remember what you did for Shadrach and Meshach and Gideon. Remember, Lord, remember. Deliver me. Uh, no, they were, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two, probably a reference to Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went about in, in sheepskins and goatskins. That's how they killed people in the, in the Colosseum. The lions are going to attack you. They're going to make you look like something a lion would want to attack. And so sheep, goats, put them out there, put you in skins, and the lions will just eat you. And they did. They're destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. See, here's the thing about this. When you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, what you realize immediately is that not every race for every person is the same. Sometimes you see the outcome of your faith in this time and then other times you just stand there wondering why the Lord isn't acting. A woman goes and she sees the doctor and the doctor takes all the tests, says you have cancer. She goes away. She tells her church She tells the prayer groups, they pray, 
She goes back to the doctor a week later and the doctor says, maybe there was something wrong with the test. We don't know, but whatever we saw is gone now. And she walks out with shouts of joy. They have a whole church meeting where they get together and they give praise to God and his power to heal. Here and now, look at what our God can do, they said. At the same time, there's another woman in the same church who went to that same doctor only days afterwards, stood in front of the doctor who said, sorry that you have cancer. She came, she put her name on the prayer list. She got the groups to pray for her and in two months she's dead. What gives? Now it's, it's clear that each of us has a different race to run. Some face hills while others rest in relative ease. And of course, we're tempted to look in all the other lanes and say, what's going on? Why am I in lane eight? Why is he getting lane four? I don't get to see anybody. I gotta go the long way around the track and he's in lane four. We look on Instagram and we say, why is their life always so good? <laughs> right? Every week they're in Hawaii and then Mexico and then they're somewhere else and somewhere else and everything's fantastic and wonderful. I swear Instagram is like the worst thing for your faith. Everybody's doing great on Instagram. I mean, you don't know. The truth is it's not real. Okay, let's just admit it's not real. They put their best face forward. They're having their own issues, but it makes us feel while we close down the Instagram and we walk away, we're like, come what the... He's in Hawaii, Lord, and I'm sitting here in Siberia. He gets to sit in the basking sunshine and it's just torrential downpour for me. They have no financial problems and that's all we have. It's not fair. If I get a moment to have a word with the Lord, I'm gonna tell him it's not fair. I mean, I'm a good Christian, so I'm not gonna do it. I'll just sit there and, you know, fume. <laughs> I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. It's interesting. It's really interesting. In John chapter 21, so this is after Jesus uh, is, is risen from the dead. And, you know, he comes and he sees Peter, who's already gone back fishing. And he's, Jesus stands on the side of the, the lake and... He says, put your nets down on the other side. They do, and they pick up all this fish. And of course, Peter's like, oh, I've seen that before. And he, so he stands up and says, it's the Lord. And he can't even wait. He just jumps into the water and he starts swimming. He gets to the beach. He's there first. And so there he is. And Jesus has got this big barrel fire. And he and Peter have this moment where Jesus asked him, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, you know I do. Yeah, but do you love me? But yeah, you know I do, but do you love me? He does it three times. So that Peter remembers the time before when he was standing over a fire like that and people asked him, do you know that Jesus? I don't. Do you know that Jesus? I don't. Do you know that Jesus? I told you I don't know him. Peter, of course, is cut to the quick. I mean, he's just so broken. Jesus' words to him on each occasion when he says, yes, you know I love you, is like you feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Peter, I'm gonna put you in charge of the church. I'm gonna take this massive failure that you are and I'm going to redeem it and use you now to do amazing things. But you need to get your head straight regarding what that's gonna mean. Very truly, he said, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you don't want to go. You see this image, right? Stretch out your hands like this. In other words, Peter, you're going to go to a cross like I did. And that's what happened, actually, according to the tradition. Peter actually was killed on a cross. He insisted to be, to be um, killed upside down on the cross because he said, I'm not worthy to take the same form of my Lord. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, Peter, you're gonna to go to the cross, okay? You understand this? You're gonna look after the church and you're gonna get killed for it. Then he said, follow me. 
And then Peter, such a great guy. I mean, like, I read about this guy and I'm like, what? You're my long lost granddaddy. Like, it's exactly, it's like Bucknam DNA here. But Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, who's writing about salvation, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and he said, Lord, who's gonna betray you? And we, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Okay, this is not one of these questions like, Lord, I'm just really interested now that I'm caring for the church. I just need to know about him so I can give him some pastoral care. This is not, I'm seeking information. This is, hey, what about him? I'm gonna die on a cross. What, what about this guy over here? He's been with me the whole time. He made all the errors, son of thunder. You saw it, Jesus. What about him? You, what about him? Also, the words that enter all of our minds, aren't they? When, these, when we look at our race and we compare it to the guy in lane four, when we look at our race and we think to ourselves, why am I Siberia and they're in Hawaii? I, what, what, about it, what about them? So what Jesus says in response to this is probably what he would say in response to you and me as we kind of sit there fuming, yeah, I love you, Lord. And if he got you alone, kind of in the, back, in the backyard and he put you over the fire and you know, had a chat with you, he would say this to you and are fuming about why isn't my race better? Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, look, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It is not your business what I do with them. Yes, he has a different race than you, Peter. I get it. Uh Uh-huh. And you can sit here and claim unfairness, but that's not my plan for you. My plan for you includes what I've got for you. Your job, Peter, is to take the next step tomorrow to follow me. His step. His plan. What John does is to wake up tomorrow and follow me in whatever it is that I place in front of you and whatever it is. You know, most of us actually, we think that the way it works with Jesus of following Jesus is we bring to him this massive contract. It's got all these details, right? You're gonna take care of me and I'm gonna be well and there's gonna be lots of comfort and happiness and all sorts of wife and everything is gonna be great, Jesus. Here, sign. Jesus is like, hmm, no, I have another idea. Here's my counter offer. And he puts in front of you a blank sheet of paper and he says, sign at the bottom. And you say, there's nothing on it. Oh, there will be. <laughs> well, we're, we're gonna fill this in as we go. Well, you want me to sign on to something that I don't even know? Uh-huh. Why would I do that? Because I'm worth it. You follow me. That occurs to me that most of the people in the room here need to hear that word. This right here is where he's called you to run. This. This moment. These issues. That challenge, that mountain, that river. This meadow. This is where he's called you to run. I'm going to help you to keep looking over in the other lanes and complaining about what God's doing with them. You follow Christ. So embrace your race. Second, so if you, like, you want to continue to follow Jesus, it'll kill you, by the way, if you keep comparing all the time and you say, well, no, I, I, I want to have a different life. You're not being fair to me, God. You'll just abandon the faith. That's kind of my point here. But if you embrace your race, you're going to keep going. Second, though, you need to run without the robe. I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 12 again. And I just want to show you in this passage, we'll take another pass by it. I want to show you what I mean here. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us, here we go, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So there's a background to what he's saying here. The background is that they used to run these races, like the race marked out for them or inside the stadium for the Olympics. They used to run them naked because, you know, don't want anything to get in the way. In the Roman world, they used to actually also wrestle naked, but different world, different time. But you didn't want anything to get in the way for running so that, you know, something could hinder you or, or, or pull you back. I had a dear friend 
Alan, who is from uh, New Zealand, and we became great friends in seminary. He was preparing for the New York City Marathon. Um, by the way, just as a total aside, one of the great things that's happened to me over the last week or so has been able to watch Tommy Kreitz prepare for a marathon. Like he walks in every day and he's kind of like shuffling and so I'm like, why are you putting yourself through this pain? I don't know. Do you not like running? No, I hate it. Oh man, what are you doing? Right? I always try to offer him like peanut M&Ms and stuff just to, just to troll him. My friend Alan knows preparing for a marathon and uh, you know, he would have to do different distances before he actually got to the marathon. They say you're not supposed to run the whole marathon before you get to the marathon, right? You run up to like 18, 20 miles or whatever. So when he got to that point, he would say, you wanna come with me? And I said, you mean like run? Well, you could run or you could ride your bike. Okay, I'll ride my bike. Is it an e-bike? Because, <laughs> so anyway, I, I get on my bike and I'm riding next to Adam or Alan and he's talking for the first like five miles and then he can't breathe and I'm just talking the whole time. Alan, why are you so quiet? Did I say something to hurt you? <laughs> anyway, we got like, all the way. So I got to accompany him and a lot of his training, you know, what he was eating and all of that kind of thing. We eventually ended up uh, at, a, at a mall. And in this mall, we went to um, the running store. And Alan went into the running store and he put on the little, the running shorts and some shoes. You guys ever seen running shorts? No, because nobody ever has, right? Because you can't see them. They're very small. Uh, um, okay. Jokes are better if I don't have to explain them, Okay. Um, but he's, he's in this mall, and, and of course he puts this stuff off and he, on and he starts like practicing his running, which is really embarrassing. But I guess we're in a running store, so it's not a big deal, right? He said, just a second. And he takes off right out the door. I'm standing next to the salesperson and he just takes off running. And the salesperson says, is he gonna be back? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and he, ran around the, he ran around the mall through all these people who are like, what in the world? And he comes back and standing there now and he goes, these will be great. Why? Because they don't, there's, they don't tangle at all. They don't get in my way at all. Right, that's what you want. If you're going to run a race and it's going to be a really long one, you don't want anything tangling. This is why like 55-year-old men wear those tight, tight suits while they're riding their bikes. And you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, listen, it's hard enough as it is. I don't want anything holding me back, you know? Yeah, well, that's the image. You, you need to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, here's the part that I really want to point out, though. Look, we know that if I said, well, what kinds of things to hinder you? You would say, well, sin does. Of course it does. If you get caught in a particular sin, it's like it starts to drag you back from loving Jesus. And then you end up justifying the sin, and that sin becomes something that you really love more than you love Jesus. And, you know, abracadabra, you're out of the faith. So yeah, we get it. There are sins like that. Yes, we need to be repenting regularly. We need to be holding short accounts with God. We need to surround ourselves with people who are gonna point out the sins. Yes, 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 so that we can continue. But what's interesting about this passage is it's not just the sin he points out. He said, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin. In other words, there are non-sinful things that we, cloud our, that, that we crowd our lives full of that actually have the potential. They're good things, but they have the potential to draw our hearts away from the living God. Like what? Well, it's interesting. Pete, Jesus himself, actually, he has something to say about this. Remember the parable of the soils? Farmer throws some seed. There are these two middle soils that Jesus is like, yeah, they start up well, like they start growing they receive the word of God, they start growing, and then after time, they just fade away. Well, this one called the thorny soil, he, he described it this way. He said, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, you're like, okay, they're going on their way, they're walking in the way of Jesus, they're following Christ. As they go on their way, they're choked. By what? Sin? Uh, life's worries, riches, and, and, and pleasures, and they don't mature. Wait a minute. Riches? Pleasures? Like when I dream for a future for my kids, I'm like, I want them to be happy, healthy, rich, and pleasured. You know, like that's what I want. And you're saying that that want, that desire, the things that give you that actually can crowd out the faith? And Jesus is like, yeah, Absolutely. 
John Piper had this fast, I was at a conference once and John Piper was in front of everybody. John Piper, if you've ever heard this guy preach, he's like really intense, right down with his notes and he's, I love him, right? But he's really intense. And at one point in his sermon, he said, he was talking about his new leather couch. He said, that couch is the most dangerous thing I own. (laughs) You live a very safe life, John. (laughs) You know what he meant by it? He, He basically, he went on to say, look, when I sit down in that couch, in that leather couch, I don't feel like ever getting up. I don't feel like doing anything for Jesus. I just want to sit there. Well, shouldn't you get rid of the couch, Sean? No, I should just be really careful with the couch. Should limit maybe how many times I sit sit in the couch. Yeah, this is what Jesus is saying. Look, we are not called to be monks or ascetics. We're not, we're not called to shun all pleasures and all wealth or anything. Nope, not at all. Solomon was a very rich man. What we are called to do is to beware of them, to recognize that the very things that sometimes give us the most joy can actually squeeze out the thing that will give us the most joy. It takes a very, very humble and self-evaluative heart to reflect on what those things are. So what are they? What hinders you? Is it money? Your love of it? Desire to have more of it? Comforts? Is it your friends? Is it the people you hang out with who you realize that when you're with them, your faith and love for Jesus is not quite what it was before you got there? Is it a sport? You've been gifted to do, and God probably wants you to play it, but is, is your love for winning in that sport so much greater than your love for, for Jesus and what he might be trying to teach you through losing? You gotta lay it aside. You gotta run without the robe. If you wanna make it to the end. There's one last one here, okay? Welcome the witnesses which is really the thrust of this passage. You could see it when I walked through it the first two times. I think those of you who've heard this passage before, I'm sure, have been thinking about it when I've read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a a great cloud of witnesses, so the image here is might maybe in a stadium, and there's, there's, you're surrounded by these, these witnesses, these people who are cheering. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So the, the basis and the reason why, the motivation for doing these acts of laying aside, right? Running with perseverance, the race marked out, is that there's this cloud of witnesses, this stadium full of witnesses who are cheering you on so that you continue. Who are you talking about? Well, everybody from Romans 11 And not probably just them, not just the heroes of the faith in the Bible, the heroes of the faith that are after the Bible, that throughout the history of the church have kept going regardless of the cost. But here's what I want you to see. Um, This word, when we read that word, we think, yeah, a cloud of witnesses, they're a bunch of, like when I go to the game, I watch it, I witness it. Hey, that Stanley Cup in that year. Yeah, I watched it, I saw it, I was there. That's probably not what he's talking about. See, you can be a witness where you just watch things or you can be a witness in the sense that you testify to them. Uh, Totally put it like this. Okay, this is my best go at an illustration. I'm in the stands at Soldier Field. I'm in the stands at Soldier Field and sitting next to me is Brian Erlacher. Okay, Mike Singletary, good, better. I'm sitting there and and the the Bears are on defense and I see the the, the game go on and Aaron Rodgers throws the ball and it's knocked down, praise God, and yay, Bears! Keep going, Bears! Next to me is Mike Singletary, 
And when this, the play begins, he's yelling, it's a cover two, it's a cover two. By the way, nobody knows what a cover two is. None of us know what a cover two. I've sat in rooms with guys watching baseball or uh, football, baseball two. It's cover, it's a cover two. It's a cover two. The reason he knows this is because he's played the game. The reason he knows is he's seen this before. He knows exactly what you're supposed to do if you're the linebacker in the cover two. You're supposed to go this direction or that direction. So he's yelling, it's a cover two. And when they knock it down, he's like, that's right. I'm witnessing the game. But he's a witness to the game. Do you see the difference? Mike Singletary can say, yes, I'm watching it too, but I'm not just watching it. I'm someone who's done it. This great cloud of witnesses are not just people who are sitting in the stands watching us. They're people sitting in the stands just pounding, pounding and saying, keep going. I did it. I did it. You can do it. It's worth it. So. I have five minutes to tell you about one of the greatest characters in the, Christian, the history of the Christian church, okay? Uh, and it's, it's going to take longer, but you'll love it. Okay, so listen. His name is Adoniram Judson. Let me tell you about who he is. Uh, he grew up in an American pastor's kids in the early 19th century, so right around 1800. He was a pastor's kid. Uh, he left the faith for a period after high school. The story of how he came back from the faith is crazy. He was actually in a, he was actually in a, in a motel. See, he'd gone to college, typical. He had gone to college and the guys at college, his, his next door neighbor, his roommate said, look, don't believe in Christianity you've been taught. You should believe that God is this distant, not involved. They called it deism. So he abandoned his faith for, for deism. Anyway, he's traveling years later and he is staying in this motel and next door, somebody is screaming bloody murder, meaning that they're dying. And they're screaming out of fear. And around 3 a.m., the screaming stops. Judson falls asleep. He wakes up the next morning. He goes downstairs and he says to the, to the clerk, he says, so what ha what's happening in the room next to me? And he said, oh yes, it's very sad. There's a man who died there last night. And Judson said, oh my dear, that's terrible. And the clerk just out of nowhere said, yes, his name is, and then he gave the name and the name of the man screaming bloody murder, murder in, the, in the room next to him was the same man who led him away from Jesus in college. Judson was so shocked. He, he felt like the Lord had placed this man there to say, you, you do see where you're headed if you do this, right? If you, if you persist in walking away. And so Judson said, that's it. And he turned his life toward Jesus and fully abandoned himself. He got this massive burden for missions. And specifically missions to Burma or what's called Myanmar today. It's in the Southeast Asia. He married his sweetheart, Anne. And they sailed to Burma through Calcutta. To get to Calcutta, it's a four-month boat ride. Okay? Like the COVID ships. Four months boat ride. They were in Calcutta for a little while. Anne gets pregnant in Calcutta. They get on another boat headed to Burma. While they're on the boat headed to Burma, she gives birth to a stillborn child on their way to serve the Lord among people who'd never heard about him. He translated the Bible in Burma. When he got there, he started translating the Bible. He's like, that's the easiest and best way for these people to come to faith in Jesus. There were no other Christian people around. It was a really closed country. The only kind of religion they would tolerate was Buddhism. The Buddhists would set up these things called zayats on the side of the road. They were like, they were like, uh, Little, little pulpits, you know, like the stairs behind them. You climb up and you get in this pulpit and there'd be like pat, mats in front of you and the person would preach Buddhist doctrine on the side of the road. And there was a cover, so it was hot, right? So there was a cover over them. So you'd come sit down, get some, be cool and have somebody preach at you about Buddhism. Well, he said, huh, that's a pretty good, he's a Baptist. So he's like, that seems like a really good idea. So he sets up his own little Zayat and he'd stand up there and preach the gospel. He'd get beat up for this. But he'd do it over and over and over again. While he's there, seven months into this kind of work, his wife gives birth. Seven months later, the child dies. 
over the next seven years, he had 18 converts. You close churches down for that, by the way, right? This isn't working. So he, said, he decided, look, I need to go to the capital. The problem is there's so much oppression among people who come to faith in Jesus that we need to get kind of religious freedom. So he shows up at the capital and he starts pleading with the emperor to open up the country to religious, you know, to, uh, religious tolerance. The emperor's like, ah, oh, maybe two months into his time there, the British start a war with the Burmese. And the Burmese say, right, anybody who speaks English at all is, is going to prison. And the next morning, he shows up to the emperor who made this decree and says, hello there, good morning. And the emperor says, that's it, you're going to prison. And then they grab him and they put him in prison in what they called a death prison. In this death prison, they would lift your legs up every night. They would elevate your legs. And the way you would sleep is you would put your shoulders and your head would be on the ground with your feet sticking straight up. Lovely posture. His wife, Anne, would come every day and plead with the emperor to let him free. He's not a spy. He's not a spy. She actually gave birth during the time that he's there. She brings the baby with her. He's not a spy. Let him free. She ends up giving him blankets and food. The only reason he stays alive is because of her. 17 months in the death prison, but he doesn't die. They realize 17 months later, where they're trying to have peace talks with the British, they need someone to speak English, but they killed them all. Oh, except for that guy Judson in the death prison. So they pick him up and he ends up being the guy who actually brokers a peace deal between the British and the Burmese. Well, talk about seeing God come through. What providence. Isn't that amazing? Six months later, his wife died. His beloved Anne. And six months after that, the child she bore. He'd gone to give everything he had for this ministry and what he had left was nothing. His little church was destroyed. His family was gone. It was just him in a faraway land. One of his biographers, Richard Pirard, wrote this. He said, the barbaric treatment he had endured, the bitter, heart-rending anguish of losing his beloved Anne and the total destruction of his little church in Rangoon left Adoniram overcome with grief. For over a year, he lived in a retreat in the woods, mourning his wife and child and struggling with his own past pride and ambition. He even dug his own grave and he sat beside it every day, imagining how he would look lying in it. On the third anniversary of Anne's death, he wrote in his journal these words, and these words alone. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. But Adoniram's faith sustained him. And he threw himself into the tasks to which he believed God had called him. He, he worked feverishly on his translation of the Bible. The New Testament had now been printed and he finished the Old Testament only years later. He also ordained the first Burmese pastor, one of his original converts, who then refounded the church in Rangoon. Okay, so 150 years later, like 2006, 2007, they're having a celebration for the printing, the first printing of the Burmese Bible. These pastors from all over the area come and they're celebrating and they're talking about Adoniram Judson. And one of those men, when he got up to speak, this is what he said. Only like 15 years ago, he said, whenever someone mentions Judson's name, tears come to my eyes because we know that he and his family suffered. But today, said this Burmese pastor, today there are six million Christians in Myanmar and every one of us traces our spiritual heritage to one man, the Reverend Adniram Judson. You do know that there are thousands of men and women who have at great cost done this, right? That they, have, that they are in the stands surrounding us and saying, I know how hard it can be. 
I know what it's like to suffer. I know. But I'm telling you, you got to keep running. Just keep running. It will be worth it. You will arrive at the destination and you will see the glory that you couldn't even imagine. That incomparable glory of God. Jesus himself is there standing and crying out. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the, the cross. Up there on the cross, Jesus, people are mocking him. The people who he could disempower disassembled by, it's just a thought. He permits them to mock him, but he, he goes through with it, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, glory follows suffering for everybody. It is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross, but he's not left you and I alone we have a cloud of witnesses and we have the Jesus himself who says, I will walk with you every single step of this journey. But you, but you, follow me. I don't know what it is that's facing you, I don't. But I do know what the Lord Jesus would call you to do. Hear the cries of those who've gone before us, urging us on. As he grabs your hand, and he said, we're gonna make it. So you follow me. Let me pray, Father, I... Feels like in the last number of weeks in our church, Father, we've been dealing with kind of similar issues all around the challenges of you know our lives and the way they are and what we expected them to be and yet the consistent message is to trust you and to love you and to serve you regardless of whatever it is that lies before us i pray lord spirit would you come would you fill our hearts with courage strengthen our feeble knees was to hear the chants of all those who've gone before their cries as they await welcoming us into the heavenly bliss that you have in store for us. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see it. Help the prize to be worth suffering for. We pray in Jesus' good name.